0: morning, church. My name is Stiles. We'll be in 1 Samuel 8 this morning, and I know what you're thinking. You see that Moises is here clearly. You don't have to say it out loud. You're like, we have to listen to this guy again. As you can see, he's ready to preach, so he's already been up here twice. He's coming up after me. He might come in the middle of my sermon. If he does, just roll with it. I'm like that substitute teacher that came intending to show a video that has nothing to do with the subject, but now the teacher showed up on the front row and I have to feel like I'm prepared. Or like you saved up all your money to go see that one player on that team you like and you showed up at the game and he's resting. That's okay, I'm much more comfortable sitting on the bench anyway when I was playing basketball in, in a small college for a couple years. The first, very first time I went in the game, I was way down on the bench. Coach called my name, and my other teammates had to say, "Styles, he you called your name? And I'm like, really? <laughs> so I run to go check in. Didn't even know the check-in process, really. And I'm on the court, and then the whole crowd is chanting my name. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm arrived. This is it. <laughs> but it's because I have my warm-up shirt on. On top of my jersey, so I had to take that off. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. So First Samuel chapter 8, we'll start in uh, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn soul, son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Holy Spirit, I pray that your words are on my lips this morning and that truth and only truth would uh, be disseminated this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Israel's demand for a king came over 400 years after leaving Egypt. And since leaving Egypt and even before arriving, Israel had a diverse experience of societal governance. As we begin a new sermon series this month, looking at the lessons learned from the era of the United Monarchy, which was Saul, David, and Solomon in Israel's history, I thought it would benefit us to take that proverbial hindsight view to better understand how they arrived at this moment in their history. But before taking our historical tour of Israel's various forms of societal structure, I want to say a few things about the role and purpose of the Old Testament and how we should engage it and approach it as Christians. We are a full gospel church. That means that we believe in the whole testimony of Scripture and we affirm that the Bible is inerrant, meaning without error, and infallible, meaning it is incapable of being erroneous or false in its assertions. We believe that because the Bible attests to be the inspired word of God. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out, some of our versions will write it as inspired, by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was the term used in his day for what you and I call today the Old Testament. Jesus continues saying, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So as followers of Christ, we are obligated to study and meditate on the entire testimony of scripture, not just the New Testament. When I was in my 20s, so a long, long time ago, I was approached by an older gentleman at at church uh, after I had preached. And he said this to me, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He said, I like the New Testament. I don't like all that Old Testament stuff, all that judgment and violence. I just like the New Testament. That encounter has stuck with me over all these years, and it grieves me. Because to be honest, I know that that gentleman isn't alone in that sentiment but it's the equivalent of someone saying, I'm a New Testament Christian, or even worse, I follow Jesus, but not that Old Testament God. He seemed mean and vindictive, as if Jesus and this Old Testament God are not one and the same. Let me just say that the whole of scripture, including the Old Testament, is extremely relevant to your growth and maturity as a Christian. In the same vein as 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, Romans 15:4 says, "For whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope." The Old Testament shows us what godly living and devotion looks like, but it also shows us the end from the beginning of lives committed to godliness. Versus lives that are enslaved by sin. But equally as important, the Old Testament reveals God's character to us. Think about it this way. In the New Testament, Jesus was on earth physically about 33 years. And the Gospels give us a glimpse of around three and a half years of that time. After his resurrection and ascension, we continue to read about God's revelation or handiwork in the church until John closed the book of Revelation around 95 or 96 AD. So overall, the New Testament gives us a little over 90 years of God's activity among men. In contrast, the Old Testament reveals God's character, which is how he engages with and intervenes with mankind over a period of around 3,000 500 years. If you walk away from the pages of the Old Testament with the perception that God is vengeful or vindictive, you haven't spent enough time in those pages. Because once you truly appreciate the character of God revealed through the pages of the Old Testament, you'll join together with the psalmist and confess that the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. With all that in mind, let's take a journey back to the early second millennium BC when God called Abraham out of a city called Haran. Depending on which biblical scholar you might read, you could say it's late third millennium or early second millennium that God called Abraham out of Haran in upper Mesopotamia. This call came after Terah, Abraham's father, took his family out of Ur, a prominent trading city-state in southern Mesopotamia, which is why you hear, I called you out of Ur. It started with his father that took the halfway journey to Haran and then continued with Abraham. Abraham passed through the land of Canaan, stopping first at Shechem, where God first appeared to him and promised for a second time, this time with the visual evidence surrounding him, that his offspring would inherit this land. He then traveled further south to Bethel, settling temporarily before journeying to the Negev in southern Canaan, and then was forced into Egypt by a famine. Abraham then returned from Egypt to his primary residence of Bethel in Canaan, but was still unable to settle down because of conflict between his family and his servants and Lot's family and Lot's servants. Bethel simply couldn't sustain or support the amount of livestock, possessions, and people from both families. Ultimately, Abraham and Lot went their separate ways to make room for the continued growth, and Abraham was finally able to settle down for an extended time. With the exception of Abraham having to save his nephew from a kidnapping by a coalition of kings, he was taken as part of the spoils of war, but that's a story for another day. Abraham's personal sojourn, since God called him from Ur, characterized the first era of Israel's existence and identity, one that would persist for almost 200 years. Israel knowing that God's people would not be known by that name until God changed Jacob's name to Israel, were a nomadic people living under a patriarchal system of governance or societal structure. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all wanderers, nomadic shepherds moving from place to place based on the needs of the livestock. Then during the latter part of Jacob's life, it seemed Abraham's offspring might finally begin to settle the promised land, truly inherit what was their right. Jacob's sons had grown and begun to establish families of their own, expanding their borders and stepping into the patriarchal role of their own tribes. But God had other plans. Famine swept the ancient Near East, forcing Jacob and his entire family to follow the steps of their ancestor and flee to Egypt for their survival. Fortunately for them, God had commissioned Joseph to Egypt ahead of them for the saving of many people alive, as the book of Genesis ends. Israel was given the land of Goshen in Egypt, and that land would serve as an incubator of sorts for God's people, accelerating their growth and population. However, this period also brought a significant and unwelcome shift in their societal governance. While Israel would remain a patriarchal society for many generations, their freedom of self-governance was removed after Joseph's death. When we see that phrase, a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. For 400 years, they would serve as forced laborers under a tyrannical and oppressive government. They had no weapons for their defense. There was no warrior king in their midst that could unify them to rise up in rebellion. They were a unified society, but they had no leader to unify them in purpose. They couldn't deliver themselves. No man or army of men, for that matter, could stand up to the might of Egypt in this day. Israel's only hope was to cry out to the God of their ancestors, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob for deliverance. And so we come to Exodus 2.23 and it says this, the people groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let me take a moment just to to deviate in my own personal devotions this morning. It was in Exodus 22 or 23 when God was talking about how to care for the widows and the fatherless. And it was similar to this. The people had nowhere else to go. They could only cry out to God. And in that chapter I read this morning, God said, If they are mistreated and they call out to me, I will hear them. So take that to heart in your own life. We do have a community of faith, a community of of believers. You have friends, you have family that are very close to you and can help you out. But sometimes you have no other alternative but to turn to the Lord. And know this, that he will hear you. In those times of groaning. With his mighty hand, God worked through Moses to deliver his people from Egypt, thus beginning the third epoch of Israel's societal governance, one that it would extend to the death of Samuel, the last judge. Israel was now under the absolute authority of a theocracy. And if there were any in the populace oblivious to this fact, when they left Egypt following the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, they would certainly have shaken out of their delusion at the foot of Mount Sinai. When the mountain quaked, the sound of the trumpet grew louder. Smoke rose to the sky like a furnace and God's voice thundered. God had multiplied his people. He called them out and would now form them into a great nation. Moses describes this beautifully in his song that he recorded in Deuteronomy 32. Starting in verse 10, he writes, he, God, found him, Israel, in a desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. For the next 400 years, God would rule as king over Israel, using human emissaries to convey his will to the people. There was another monumental shift initiated by God's covenant at Sinai. That was the introduction of God's law, literally written in stone. No longer would there be any ambiguity between or about what God deemed right and wrong. This law would be invaluable in the hands and the minds and the hearts of a unique group that represented another significant shift brought on by this theocratic government. In Numbers chapter 11, God instructed Moses to select 70 elders among the people to share the burden of the people. In Deuteronomy one, we learn that these were the heads of the tribes, wise and experienced men, and they formed a hierarchy. Some were over thousands, some were over hundreds and so on. This assembly moved Israel slightly beyond the patriarch by birth system, requiring elders to show wisdom and experience and be recognized as leaders among the people. These 70 elders operated as judges over the people and would serve as a template for the distributed governmental substructure under God as king in the theocracy. So from Moses to Joshua, through the 300 plus years of the period of judges, Israel had one king, God. Underneath his authority were representatives called judges that were supposed to be distributed among the people as Moses instructed in Deuteronomy 16. He said, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So from its inception and for the first 200 years, Israel existed as a nomadic patriarchal society. For their survival, they were forced to relocate into Egypt, where they lived under cruel bondage for over 400 years. And then after the Exodus, and for the next 400 years, they lived under a theocracy, having God as king, with human mediators called judges. That brings us back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, with a demand from the people, from the elders, for a king. This would launch Israel into the age of the monarchy that would last in some capacity, united, divided for almost 500 years. So for the remainder of our time, let's attempt to answer two questions. Why did Israel demand a king? And what makes a godly king or a godly leader? So why did Israel demand a king? There are two reasons specified by the elders in 1 Samuel 5, 8, 5. They amounted to basically, one, peer pressure, seeking to be like all the nations around them. And two, the failure of the current judges. If we look back in chapter 8, the first five verses, when Samuel became old, he to judge us like all the nations. So the elders used the corruption and ineptness of Samuel's sons and took the opportunity to reject the long-standing theocratic form of government. As God would later clarify, as we read earlier, they were not rejecting Samuel, but they were rejecting him as king. This was a revolution of sorts but it was the culmination of generations forsaking the one true God and serving the false gods, as God told Samuel. But this doesn't mean that the elders were out of line or that the demand was unwarranted. There were challenges rising on Israel's borders, in particular from the Philistines, that the elders believed that self-serving judges like Samuel's sons would be unable to meet. The people were not necessarily rejecting judges and the critical role they played in society, rather they were consolidating what was to be a distributed function among the tribes into one sovereign monarch who would serve as supreme judge over all the tribes. That brings us to the first quality of a righteous king or leader. A godly leader is just. In 1 Samuel 8:19 and 20 we read that the elders once again demanded a king from Samuel even after he warned them of the price they would pay for a monarch. After repeating that they wanted a king so they could be like all the nations, they continued by stating two important qualifiers for their king. One, that he may judge us, and two, that he may go out before us and fight our battles. The Hebrew word for judging is shafat, and it means to act as lawgiver, judge, and governor. Israel expected their king to execute the law, whether civil, religious, political, or criminal. But their hope certainly was for a just judge, one who would punish the wicked and exalt the righteous, A king judging as Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 16 when he said, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There is something primal in the heart of man that makes us seek after justice. And that comes from us being created in God's image. Isaiah 61.8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Psalm 37.28 says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off having been created in God's image, we have within us that same expectation and that same longing for justice. Proverbs 29.4 says that by justice, a king builds up the land. The elders of Israel were hopeful for a king that would judge righteously by executing justice on the righteous and the wicked. But Israel also desired a king that would go out before them and fight their battles. This was a characteristic of kings that they observed during their time in the promised land. We even see this pattern, this this activity memorialized in scripture. 2 Samuel 11 begins with, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. In the eyes of Israel at this time, kings were battle-tested warriors, champions of the people. In fact, this is the quality that made Israel turn their affections away from Saul and to David. Saul refused to go out and battle Goliath. But David, representing the interests of the people and his God, slayed the giant. But Israel is not alone in its desire for a warrior king, someone to stand in the gap between the adversary and his people a champion who leads his people into battle instead of cowering behind his authoritative privilege. There is a reason that cultures throughout the ages have been infatuated with leaders, heroes, celebrities, artists, athletes, and politicians. And that's because deep down, we desire to be led. In scripture, we are often referred to as sheep. Sheep require a shepherd to lead them. Tragically, people all too often gravitate toward wolves masquerading as benevolent shepherds and end up wasting their lives in the bottomless pit of self-satisfaction and instant gratification. A righteous people desire a righteous leader that will go out before them to champion righteous causes. Let me end with this. This is the best part of this whole episode of the elders demanding a king for Israel. It was a setup. God set them up. I say that a bit facetiously, but hear me out. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses was speaking to all Israel 400 years before this event, when he said, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. This demand for a king was known all along. It didn't take God by surprise. On the contrary, in fact, it was part of God's redemptive plan. For in this succession of the righteous kings of Israel, God would give us a glimpse of the one who was to come, whose kingdom has no end and no equal. This is the one who shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the king whom Daniel saw in one of his visions. He wrote, I saw in my night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is the good shepherd. The good shepherd who leads us and stands in the gap between us and our adversary. He is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. He is our warrior king who goes out before us and fights our battles. As John witnessed when he saw heaven opened and behold, a white is our righteous judge. He will exalt the righteous and bring low the wicked. And Jesus is our forever warrior king standing in the gap between us and our adversary, going out before us to fight our battles. let me end with a personal testimony i went to israel in 2011 i think it was and we were out in what would would have been the pasture land in this day and we were seeing these makeshift caves that were just just kind of a mounded rock with an opening And that was the location where the shepherds would bring the sheep in for the night to protect them from the predators. And the Bible talks about the sheep gate. Jesus is the sheep gate. And what that means is in that small opening that the sheep went into, the shepherd... Laid his body in front of that opening between the people and their adversary. Jesus is our sheep gate, our warrior king, our righteous judge. Let's pray, church. Father, what a marvelous plan! you had from the beginning. You showed Israel, and you show us in scripture, glimpses of what a righteous king looks like. But all along, you were looking for the one king that was to come to sit on the throne of David whose kingdom would never end. As a body here today, Father, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ, your son, is our king forever. We thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us, for protecting us from our adversary. We bless you with our life, with the gifts that you've given us, with our abilities.